How do you know when an enthusiastic hobby has slipped into the realm of addiction? When it comes to sex and porn, it's important to be able to separate the myths from the reality. Whether it's affecting you yourself or a partner of yours or someone else you know, today's episode will help you see what's really going on with sex and porn addiction and understand what to do about it. In case you haven't downloaded it yet, I also want to remind you that I have a free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. These are the kinds of things that when you put into practice, they will let you communicate about just about anything and stay connected to your partner rather than having it drive you apart. To download my free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Also, I'd just like to remind you that Relationship Alive is my offering to you so that you can have the best possible relationship. If you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue with our mission. To choose something that feels right for you and every little bit counts, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Lydia, Anne, Catherine, Monica, Angie, Cynthia, Barrett, Monica, again, I guess we had two Monicas this past week, Maribeth and Kent. Thank you all so much for your generous, generous, generous contributions to Relationship Alive. And one last reminder for you before we dive in. Uh, we have a Facebook community, the Relationship Alive community, where you can join other people who listen to the show and where we've created a safe space to talk about whatever's going on with you and your relationship or your quest for relationship. So uh, just come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. Uh, and you can also follow Relationship Alive on Instagram. All right, I think that's it. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. We're going to revisit a topic today that we've talked about before on the show, and we're going to take an, ev an even deeper dive into the question of addiction, especially as it pertains to sex addiction, porn addiction, love addiction. How do I identify if that's something that's impacting you or someone that you love? And if the answer is yes, what can you do about it? Is there hope? How do you facilitate change in a way that actually leads you to someplace that's healthier and not being impacted by addiction? To talk about the topic today, we have with us Paula Hall, who is a licensed psychotherapist from the UK and whose book, Understanding and Treating Sex and Pornography Addiction, is a masterful work on understanding exactly where sex addiction comes from 
and what you can do to treat it. And her words are based on years of practice with clients and seeing what works and what doesn't. Uh, Paula is the founder of the Laurel Center, which offers treatment programs in the UK for people. And they also offer sessions in the UK and over Skype and Zoom for people everywhere in the world. So it's powerful work that they're doing. She's written a couple other books. Um, well, actually many other books, but a couple others that are notable in terms of um, sex addiction recovery, one for the partners and one for the couple as a whole. And we'll, we'll probably get a chance to talk about that as we go. In the meantime, there will be a detailed transcript of today's episode. If you are interested in downloading that, just visit neilsatin.com slash addiction. And as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, which will also get you the transcript to today's episode. I think that's it for now. Paula Hall, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's really great to have you here. I'm curious to know, maybe for starters, what what just led you to focusing your work on sex addiction and and porn addiction how did how did you end up there oh gosh i thought you might start with an easy question there <laughs> <laughs> um i guess so i've been a therapist for gosh nearly 30 years now initially i started in drug addiction uh did that for about three years and then i trained as a uh, couple psychotherapist and sex therapist and it was probably about probably about 15 years ago now, I was working in private practice and I had seen a couple of clients, a couple of male clients coming on their own, uh, both of them very happily married, um, families, young families, devoted fathers, but they had these habits. Um, one of them, it was um, visiting uh, massage parlors. Uh, the other one was picking up women in bars, basically. And what I noticed was that being a psychotherapist for some years, I was able to kind of work with these guys to understand why they were doing what they were doing. And, you know, typical psychotherapy style, how was your relationship with your mother and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, exploring that. Um, And we were able to kind of find those answers. But unfortunately, for both of those guys towards the end of the case, uh, they understood why they did it and carried on doing it. Um, I didn't seem to have any tools to help them to stop. And then basically what happened was I went to a, uh, a conference and um, one of the speakers there, a guy called Thaddeus Burchard, um, also someone in the UK, did a talk on sex addiction. He was one of the, uh, very much one of the pioneers over here in the UK. And he talked about a cycle of addiction and um, having come from drug addiction, all the pennies just dropped into place. I just started seeing how what I had been um, sitting with with those two guys was just like the work that I was doing with drug addiction, but this was around sexual behaviours. Uh, and for some reason, that that penny hadn't dropped before. Um, so, yeah, that, that I guess failing my clients is what drove me to be so passionate about understanding this problem more, learning more, and really developing tools and models and services that could help. And can you talk a little bit about your perspective? Because I know you also uh, do uh, couples work and you've done sex therapy with with clients. Um, I think in the UK they call it psychosexual therapy. Um, And uh, um, so I'm curious, where does sex positivity 
intersect with this question about whether or not we can be addicted to sex? In, in terms of being a therapist and being sex positive, I think it's a bit like, um, you know, being food negative if you work with people who chronically overeat. Of course, I think sex is brilliant. Um, <laughs> it's great. Um, the, the problem is addiction robs people of their sexuality. Um, I've never met a happy sex addict. Now, you could argue that perhaps they're out there, but they're not seeking help. So perhaps I'm the wrong person to know that. But my experience has been that um, addiction and compulsion robs people of their positive sexuality. Um, It takes away their ability to choose the lifestyle they want to lead. It becomes a place where they feel, feel shame, where they feel dissatisfied, where they feel unsatiable, whether it it feels seedy, it feels stolen. Um, It's no longer, it's no longer a pleasure. And um, I think treating sex addiction is about helping people get their sex lives back. Um, When I run the group, so we do a lot of group work over here with guys, and the guys often think I'm kind of joking when I I quite often start off by saying, I'm going to make sure that your sex lives are better than they have ever been, ever. And they kind of look at me a bit curiously and think that's an odd thing to say. But actually, I think that is one of the goals of treating sex and porn addiction is helping people have brilliant sex lives and really enjoying sex again in, in whatever shape or form that makes, whether that's within a monogamous relationship, a heterosexual relationship, whether in kink or whatever your taste is. I think that's irrelevant. Yeah, great. And that seems to touch into the question about how someone would know whether what they what they're experiencing is addiction or not so can we can we steer a little bit towards assessment and how that how that works yeah i think it 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 does lead to that very much so Um, i think a really critical question is do do you enjoy what you're doing are you still enjoying it or is it never enough have you always got to go for the next hit are you noticing that your behavior is escalating that you're preoccupied by it. Um, I think a good sexual experience should leave you with a smile on your face, a sense of wholeness and fullness, and you feel satiated, a bit like a you know a good meal. You're not worried about the next where the next one's coming from. You're not anxious about it. You're not worried that someone's going to find out. Um, so if it's a positive experience that you've really enjoyed, and um, then, then you're probably not acting out compulsively. But if, you, if you're preoccupied with it, if it's never enough, if it's nowhere near as much fun as you thought it was going to be, then perhaps this has become compulsive. I think ultimately escalation is the, uh, is the real critical sign of compulsivity. It's when it's escalating. Yeah. And so just to really be specific about escalation, what are some different forms that that could take? So that might be um, spending more and more time on the activity or planning for the activity or recovering from the activity or needing higher and higher stimulus. So that might be more hardcore porn or taking more risks with sort of cruising or whatever um, in order to get the same kind of impact. Um, I think most of us understand escalation. If you think about it around alcohol, escalation might be that rather than one glass of wine it's become a bottle so it's more and more of it or rather than the glass of wine it's now become a glass of whiskey you need something that's uh, stronger and harder to get the same impact got it and then there's also right the um 
the potential for certain kinds of activity to lead to other kinds of activity. So you might start out in an online realm and end up chatting with people, end up on dating sites or visiting escorts. And like there's that kind of escalation as well. Absolutely. Escalation into, um, yeah, I mean, there's other forms of kind of higher stimulation, but there may be ones that are, you know, are going to cause you more and more harmful consequences. Um, if you're beginning to cross your own boundaries, things that you always said you wouldn't do, promise you wouldn't do, never thought you'd even want to do, perhaps, then again, that's showing that that escalation is is really pushing into your own value system. Yeah. And is, is, it, is there a point in making a distinction between... Um, like it's an addiction that's pushing you past your values or it's an inability to live according to your values that's keeping you from sticking with your values. Do you know what I, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, good point. I, um, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> I think I think this is where sh- shame comes in and shame unfortunately comes up a heck of a lot in this work. Um, if you keep crossing your moral values and actually, hey, you ain't really that bothered about it, you probably won't feel any shame. I also shame, the um, experience of shame demonstrates that you actually have strong values. If you didn't have strong values, you wouldn't experience it, you just wouldn't care. Um, so if you know you're getting against your value system and you feel really bad about it, but nonetheless you're unable to stop then it's likely to be addiction. If you're crashing your value system, but you don't really care, you may still be an addict, but you've also got a problem with your moral compass. Got so, um, I, you know, classically, you can have kind of sometimes I have a first session with a guy and he'll go, hey, you know, I just, you know, am I an addict? I don't know if I'm an addict or whether I'm just a bit of a womanizer and I just want my cake and eat it. Maybe that's what it is. And I often say, well, you know what? You can be an addict and a womanizer who wants a cake and eat it. They're not mutually exclusive. You can be both or one or the other. But escalation is the sign where it really is addiction, I would say. Yeah. So just a quick point of clarification. Um, you've mentioned working with guys a lot. How, yeah. how gendered is this problem? So uh, yeah, most of the research seems to say, and the research certainly I did for um, for my first book as well on this, suggested that about 30% of, the, of people with sex and porn addiction are women. And certainly if you sort of look at some of the forums, some of the kind of free spaces, if you like, um, you'll see more and more women's voices coming up talking about their problem. But they don't seem to come forward for help. And this seems to be um, something that's, that's international. I've got you know colleagues delivering on my programs in other parts of the world as well. And obviously there's, there's a lot of therapists working in the States. Um, and the women don't seem to come forward for help as often. And, you know, I'm quite curious about that. Is some of that to do with economics? Is that to do with um, different different types of shame that are around for um, female sex and love addicts? Um, Is it because there aren't enough services offered? On a few occasions, we have um, tried to offer very, very specific female services, but still had very little take up. So I think, you know, yeah, that is interesting because there there are so many uh, other realms where I think the women lead in terms oh, of, you know, couples therapy or even like personal growth work. Um, there's there seem to be a lot more women on average in terms of like the demographics of people who are writing me and, and listening to my show just as one sample group, um, predominantly women. So um, 
it's interesting that 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 would be the case that they'd be less inclined to seek help um for for sex and porn addiction yeah and my you know my hypothesis would be with well, two one is i suspect that an awful lot of that um those women who are addicted or using sex compulsively may actually be working within the sex trade so for them finding help is also going to get in the way of their their income stream um but i think we do still live in a society where the messages about um dare I use the old-fashioned word, promiscuity, male promiscuity is still viewed quite differently to female promiscuity. So, you know, a man that is sleeping around, has multiple partners, is is a bit of a lad, a bit of a cad, is, yeah, a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a player. The words we use for women um, are still tend to be slut or so much more derogatory. So I do think it's harder for women to come forward. I think there's a, I don't know if it's more shame, but a different kind of shame for women coming forward for help. And as I say, I think it's a catch-22 because um, in, in the media, in situations such as this, I find myself talking predominantly about men because that's who we predominantly work with. Most of our services are targeted at men because they're the people that come. I think that um, means that a lot of women begin to feel increasingly invisible um, so I really hope it will change, and um, yeah, we need we are going to launch an online um, group for women because then at least we don't have to worry so much about the geography. So if there's anybody listening out there who would define themselves as a female sex or porn addict, do get in touch because you could join one of our um, online support groups. Um, and I hope that might begin to get something going. And then as we're talking about it more and more women come forward, then it will make it easier for more women to come forward and get into that positive spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, one thing that I'm curious about is, um, so we, we've talked about, some of the kinds of behaviors that might fall into this category. And, uh, in, in researching for our conversation and, and also resulting from my conversation with Alex Katahakis before, I've talked to a lot of people about masturbation more than I've ever talked to people about masturbation before, which has in itself been interesting because I think there's so much shame that we hold around self-pleasuring. And, um, and there's this question about how um, masturbation can potentially be addictive or can be used as a coping strategy for dealing with emotionally challenging situations or emo- emotionally challenging places in one's life. And so I'm curious about like if someone first is using masturbation as a way to kind of cope with stress and hardship. On so, I've I've talked to some people who've said, well, isn't that normal? Like it, that's Absolutely. we have that's that's a mechanism that we have in our bodies to do that. But then if you suggest to someone, well, how about not doing that? They would say, well, why would I not? Or I could never stop doing that. And then it starts to bridge that question into like, well, is it an addiction for you to be <laughs> to be masturbating as a as a way to cope, or or is it not? So. There's this gray area here that I'd love to have your insight on because I think a lot of people, when I talk to them about it, they're like, well, wow, if like that means I'm an addict, then I got to think like, you know, 90% of guys out there are sex addicts using masturbation as a way of dealing with their lives and fantasizing and things like that. And um, 
overall, I want just people to be pulled toward feeling like whatever they're doing is healthy for them and positive. So yeah, can, can you shine some light on that? Yeah. So first and foremost, I, I absolutely do not think there is anything wrong with using sex, whether it's partner's sex or masturbation for comfort. Um, I think, you know, couples have kissed and made up, uh, as we euphemistically call it, for years, um, centuries. People have masturbated to help them get to sleep at night, masturbated to help them get out to work in the morning, masturbated because they're bored, masturbated because they're sad. That in itself, I don't think is a problem at all. It's when it becomes a primary coping mechanism. It's when... um, if for some reason you couldn't, then actually you start feeling worse and worse and worse. It's, and again, it's when it's escalating. So I think if somebody uses um, masturbation as a way to get to sleep every night and it it takes 10 minutes, whatever, it's never escalated. It's never got worse than that. It's not getting in the way of their relationship. So let's assume they're single or whatever. But it, it's a habit. There's no harmful consequences. I think the problem is we'll try and stop. Why? Why do that? I, you know, I watch television um, quite often to switch <laughs> off. You know, well, well, maybe you're addicted. Maybe you should stop. Well, maybe I just don't have the motivation to try and stop because I don't see why it's a problem. Right. And I think that's where we start getting into the realms of pathologizing sexuality. Mm. Um. For for me, you know, masturbation. Why is that any? It's a physical comfort. Why is that any worse than having a soak in the bath or putting your feet in a foot spa? Yeah, great. So I think that maybe the question is where it bumps up against your values and um, and that question of escalation. I think in terms of addiction, it's about escalation. If Mm -hmm. there's been no escalation, then. Uh, I, I realize I'm being very categorical here and there's bound to be some exceptions, but on the whole, if there's been no escalation, I'd say there is no addiction. Mm. Um, it, just because it bumps up against your values, that doesn't make it an addiction. I've had a number of clients come and uh, want to work with me. They're you know, people of faith where uh, masturbation for them is a, is, is a sin. It's something they're not comfortable with, but they keep doing it. Um, and, and they will use the language of addiction. And I, I, it, if there's no escalation and the on, only problem is that it's against their values, then it's not addiction. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not work with that person. You might not help them to find other things to do. So let's say my feet somehow became allergic to my foot spa, so I couldn't use it anymore. Let's find some other ways of getting some physical comfort that aren't going to cause a problem in other areas of my life. But let's not call it an addiction because it's it's just not accurate. Yeah, great. That's a, that's a helpful distinction to have. And I think it's also important now to recognize, so as I'm, sh- I'm sure you know, CSBD, Compulsive Sexual Behavior Disorder, has been accepted by the World Health Organization to go into ICD-11. Um, so it will be, uh, we're not calling it addiction yet, it's going to be called Compulsive Sexual Behavior Disorder, which will include pornography. Um, this will be an official diagnosis that can be used. Um, that, that's coming online quite soon. But very, very clearly in the criteria the diagnostic criteria is that it cannot be purely a problem caused by morality. It has to be causing problems outside of that. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, another 
the sort of way I often describe this is if alcohol was against your moral values, so for some people of faith, of course, drinking alcohol is not okay, just because you have a small glass of wine every single evening to get to sleep would not make you an alcoholic. If it's never, ever escalated, that would not make you an alcoholic, even though it's against your values. Right. And you need to stop drinking because it's against your values (laughs) and find something (laughs) else. So I'm not saying you shouldn't change, but you wouldn't call that person an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Really helpful distinctions. Um, And where this, I think, also gets interesting is because it plays into the partner dynamic and um, that question of like, well, of course, I don't have a problem with you masturbating, but what are you thinking about? And or you're looking at porn like that doesn't seem like it is, you know, aligns with my values or that sort of thing. So how does that when when you look at um, addiction and that sense of like, is what you're doing causing a problem for you in your life? Um, how do you how do you separate that from those other kinds of conversations that people need to be having with their partners anyway about what's appropriate, what isn't, how to handle it when they actually have differences? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, for for, for some couples, um, pornography is just not okay. It's not okay for a partner. And um, if your partner is looking at pornography, it's something that you are morally opposed to, then that is going to create an issue within your relationship. Um, and I would say that's an issue for couple, account, couple counselling. So assuming it's not escalating, there's nothing to define it as an addiction, then this is a couple counselling issue to decide what to do about this. Um, and I think if you're somebody who is, just can't stop looking at pornography in spite of how your partner feels about it, then maybe you, you either need to look at um, your feelings towards your partner and how much you respect them um, and their views, or you need to look at um, whether or not this is a compulsion. Um, I think in terms of so fantasy, I mean, that, that again is a really interesting one. It is perfectly possible to masturbate and not use fantasy. And, of course, some partners don't have an issue with fantasy. Some partners will thoroughly enjoy sharing their fantasies with each other. Some people use fantasy, but it's always a fantasy of their partner, so their partner doesn't object. Um, again, it's, it's I mean, as a sex therapist, and I haven't been a sex therapist for, what, 18 years now, um, talking about fantasy is is something that commonly comes up when you're working with couples with um, sexual difficulties or want to enhance their sex life. And every, every couple is different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said something. Did I answer your question? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. And there are like so many, so many things flowing around in, you know, so many different directions we could go. I think to ground us, um, I'm curious, like as a partner, what are some ways that you might sense that there's something going on that would need to be addressed um, as an addiction? Yeah, that that is a tricky one, isn't it? I I think it's um, a a changes in behavior. So someone who might be becoming more and more withdrawn from the relationship, someone who's becoming more and more secretive, um, somebody who's finding more and more excuses or reasons to not engage in activities that they previously would have seen as important. So if they've never wanted to go 
to the parents' evening and they're making excuses now that it's probably not relevant. But if they've, you know, if, if this is a new thing, if they seem to be finding excuses to get out of responsibilities that they would have enjoyed otherwise, then I think you, you might question that. Um, struggling with stress more. Um, I think if you've, it's tricky. Partners often, when they reflect back, recognize that there have been changes. It's only with hindsight that they realize why. Um, but there are, of course, a, you know, 101 other explanations for why somebody might be withdrawing, behaving secretively. There may be that there are issues within the relationship that need addressing. I've got nothing to do with um, sexual porn addiction. Um, or it may be something else altogether. But yeah, I think withdrawing from the relationship becoming more secretive um, and yeah, changes in character, behavior. Let's talk. It's about, really vague, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's really a little, tough for partners. A little vague. I, and I mean, what comes up for me is the sense that if you are sensing something is going on, then you want to do your best, I think, to lean in and to have vulnerable conversations. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so that brings up this question of like, how can people in partnership particularly, um, how can they create a context that allows them to talk about this safely, especially because in partnership, so many of the things that happen are are a violation of the integrity of the relationship. So as a partner, I think you ideally you want to if something's going on with your your spouse or your partner you want to know what's going on but then once you find out what's going on the and and that of course i think is what often keeps these things in the shadows right is that um someone might be willing to talk about their struggle except knowing the impact that that could yeah, have on absolutely. their on their partner and on their relationship yeah, it, it is. It is really difficult. I, I think sometimes as a partner, so, you know, talk, if you do have a sense that there, there may be something around this that they don't want to talk to you about, can they talk to somebody else? Mm. Um, and that might be the bridge to them talking to you. So I wouldn't say that that is a long alternative, of course, but that might be the bridge to them being able to talk to you. Um but it is really difficult. And, you know, I've worked with partners who have, you know, tried to say, and that, that, that with all integrity and commitment, I will support you. If this is about this, then let me know. Tell me there's nothing we can't work through. And then they find out something and they are absolutely devastated. And the guy feels cheated because he trusted that she wasn't going to react like that. She had no idea what he was going to say when she said that. Um it's really difficult. It really is. It really is difficult. Uh, and of course, that's where couple counselling often comes in. So it may be that you're noticing there are issues within your relationship. There's issues within your um, sexual relationship, but also your emotional intimacy. And you agree to some couple counselling for that. And maybe within that environment, it comes out. I mean, certainly one of the things we're a training organization as well. And one of the things I say whenever I'm uh, speaking to or training uh, couple counselors is always ask about porn use, always do individual history sessions and always ask about porn use and compulsive behaviors. Um, because so often, well, increasingly that is at play, if not the cause of that is at least a contributing factor to so many issues for so many couples now. 
Our first sponsor for today is a new sponsor, and I'm really excited to bring them to your attention. For years now, whenever it's come to travel, I've had to rely on the random suitcases that have come my way over the years, which always come up a little short, lacking key features that make sense for how I like to live when I'm on the road. So enter today's sponsor, Away. Away has created a line of suitcases that are simple and durable with important benefits for you when you're on the go. I have their bigger carry-on, which meets the carry-on requirements for most major airlines, and yet it still gives you plenty of space for packing. It has an ejectable built-in battery so that you can easily charge your phone while you're waiting for your flight. It also features a built-in compression pad to make it easier to get more stuff into your suitcase. And perhaps my favorite thing is the built-in laundry bag to contain your dirty clothes. I mean, how many times have I been on the road and wanted an easy way to separate the things that I've worn from the things yet to be clothing me? Lots of times. Plus, a durable shell that lasts a lifetime of travel, a limited lifetime warranty where they will fix or replace your bag if it ever gets damaged, plus a 100-day trial period for you to try out your suitcase. Away seems to have thought of everything to take the risk out of buying a suitcase. Oh, and on top of all that, they have free shipping in the contiguous U.S., Australia, and Europe. Yep, you heard me right. Free shipping. And like all our wonderful sponsors, Away has an awesome deal for you. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash relationship and use the promo code relationship at checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com slash relationship and using the promo code relationship at checkout. Our second sponsor for today is Noah Me, and they also have a special offer for you as a Relationship Alive listener on their exquisite jewelry. As I've mentioned before, if Amazon Prime and Tiffany's had a baby, it would be Noah Me. Their pieces are made to last a lifetime. They're perfect for today and also an heirloom that your family will treasure far into the future. Noemi jewelry is handcrafted in the finest materials, reclaimed 18 karat gold so they don't have to go mining for new stuff, conflict-free stones, and lab-grown diamonds. And it's all priced as fairly as possible because they eliminate the middleman. Also, they ship to you overnight for free so that you can try it on. And you can have up to 60 days to return it for free with a full refund. So trying something from their site to see how it feels on you is literally completely risk-free. It's also a super easy experience. And I love how they make it easy for you to drop a hint to let someone know exactly what you would like uh, with their drop a hint feature on their website. So it makes Noemi perfect for gift giving without worrying about something tacky showing up at your door. It's something I truly appreciate about them. Their jewelry is unique, and you can tell just how much care they put into creating it, even in how they present it when you open the box and it arrives at your door. You can literally feel the quality under your fingertips. And as I mentioned, they have a special offer for you. If you head to hellonoemi.com, that's the word hello, followed by N-O-E-M-I-E dot com, and use the coupon code ALIVE for $75 off your order today. That's $75 off with the coupon code ALIVE at hellonoemi.com. 
Our third sponsor for today has a special offer for you to help you get exactly the kind of support that you need as you're creating a web of support for yourself. And we talk about that a lot on the show. And when it comes to addictions, that's definitely a place where you want to get as much support as you possibly can, whether you're struggling with an addiction or whether your partner is. So one way that allows you to connect with a professional counselor in an online environment that's safe and private is today's third sponsor, BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. Along with scheduling video or phone sessions, you can also chat and text with your therapist. They're affordable and financial aid is available for those who qualify. So whether it's anxiety, depression, your relationship, stress, grief, addiction, or simply figuring out how to communicate what you need to communicate better, definitely consider BetterHelp as a way to help you transform the places where you are stuck. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option because as a Relationship Alive listener, you get 10% off your first month with the discount code ALIVE. So go ahead and get started today. Just go to betterhelp.com slash alive, fill out the questionnaire that helps them assess your needs and match you with a counselor that you will love. That's betterhelp.com slash alive. And thank you away, Noemi and BetterHelp for your support of Relationship Alive. And now let us get back to our conversation with Paula Hall. What advice do you have for a partner who's in that that quandary of feeling on the one hand the impact of the betrayal so that betrayal trauma and somewhere in there saying well I love this person and and I do want to help them but I'm I'm really angry or I yeah. I'm feeling devastated or all of those things I think firstly be gentle with yourself and give yourself time um it is perfectly okay to be angry. It is understandable to be angry. It is okay to have those feelings. Find somebody that you can share those feelings with. Um, ultimately, you know, if you want your relationship to survive, then you need to be at both of you need to get to the place where you're blaming the addiction rather than your partner mm. and you're able to rebuild your relationship from what the addiction has done to you rather than what the part your partner's done to you but that takes time and initially when there is so much pain around and fear and of course that fit you can't break through that fear unless your partner really is getting into re recovery and able to support you in your recovery um but yeah it takes time so often it is just be just be gentle with yourself. I know in your in your book you advocate not making any drastic decisions for an, a period of time so that you yeah. have time to kind of think it all through and regain your footing. Yeah, especially if you've got children. I mean there's you know there are some decisions that are very hard to take back. I think if you've got children then the the ways what what I often say to partners is <laughs> don't let what he has done his complete utter and total screw up force you to make decisions that you're not ready to make hmm. and force you to make decisions that you and your children potentially will have to live with forever yeah his crisis does not have to create urgency for you doesn't have to and and, do and that's you have, tough to hold on to but you know it's true yeah do, and do you have thoughts for someone who's now listening to this and thinking wow maybe i do struggle with that or maybe that is an issue for me um 
how how can they come forward in a way that has the best chance of panning out well for them? I think I think for partner. I mean, I I, I believe in connecting with others in all kinds of work. I, I think recovering on your own is incredibly. Um, difficult, whether you're the the addicted partner or the partner. So certainly for partners, I would encourage them to find other partners. But do find other partners who, I'm trying to think of how to say this respectfully, um, who, who want to move on from this. Occasionally I have stumbled across sort of partner forums or partners who've been on certain partner forums where it, everything's about staying in the same place. It's, it's a year on, two years on, three years on, five years on, and they still feel completely trapped and you know burdened by this situation. And I think that is so disheartening and discouraging for other partners. Um, you're not trapped. There, there may be some very, very difficult decisions to make, and they're decisions that have been forced on you. But you're not trapped. There are you do have choices about where you move forward. So find support from other people who are are trying to find ways of moving forward, whether that's together or apart. Great, great. And I think where I was heading was also, you know, we have this. We've been talking a little bit about if you suspect something's going on for your partner, what can you do, and how do you handle the betrayal and all of that. If you are potentially the addicted partner. What are some ways to step forward that help you handle the betrayal trauma that your partner is experiencing right. or own what's yeah. happening for you? That sort of thing. Well, that, yeah, yeah, he's hit the nail on the head there, Neil. Own what's happening. Own the fact that you did cause this. And I think that's really, really, really difficult. I think um, we've just run one of our, a um, couple of weeks ago, couples intensives. It's the first time we've run the couples program since the book came out for couples. And it was so powerful. It was incredibly powerful. And I think the absolute number one tool for helping couples move forward is for the addicted partner to express empathy. Um, as soon as the addicted partner gets into defensiveness, gets into yeah but get it, it just all falls apart relentless empathy um i think for, for for the partner if you try and think about it like this if your partner doesn't believe that you know how it feels and what you've done how on earth can they trust you won't do it again mm-hmm and you have got, whether it's something was an accident, whether it's deliberate, whatever it was, you have got to demonstrate relentless empathy and drop the defensiveness. Of course, you can't live in a place of constant accusations two years, three years, five years on. But if you're in the first 12 months post full disclosure, and this is assuming there has been the disclosure that's required and you are fully in recovery, you've got to just keep taking it on the chin and relentless empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like how we're, we're bridging in starting to get towards recovery and repair. When you talk about the disclosure, just so that everyone understands what you're talking about, what are you talking about? <laughs> so uh, we, we talk about therapeutic disclosure. We recommend therapeutic disclosure. Uh, unfortunately, there are few partners who know absolutely everything. Uh, 
that that's that's not necessarily because they haven't been told. Um, it may be that actually uh, much of what was told was late at night. It was in the height of emotion. A lot of it may have been forgotten. Um, what I've experienced so often as a couple counsellor is that if you don't do a therapeutic disclosure, then some additional bit of information that either gets discovered, disclosed or remembered sabotages the healing process. So um, a therapeutic disclosure is about getting the facts out on the table and um, it's important to distinguish between a therapeutic disclosure and a forensic disclosure. This is not every single nitty gritty of sexual position and cup size and place and whatever that that's forensic and completely unhelpful but a broad brush understanding of the chronology that the you know the dates the times the, the the where's and when's the what kind of things the behaviors are really important and really you know that's between the therapist and the partner to kind of negotiate what's going to be genuinely helpful then when you have got that information, when you both know what it is you're dealing with, uh, in the couple's book, I use the metaphor of um, a tidal wave crashing over your relationship. And it's kind of really understanding what that tidal wave is. So you know what the damage is. So you know what you're repairing from. Mm. And I think until that happens, you keep getting the aftershocks. So a therapeutic disclosure is a way of putting the past in the past assuming of course no relapses but putting the past in the past so you really can move on from it right and i like the support that you suggest for having that kind of disclosure where you know they're supported by a couple's therapist and also yeah. each by their own therapist so that there's yeah. a lot there are a lot of people holding the container around the information coming out absolutely Absolutely. And, you know, for some people that there, you know, there are extra bits of information or things that are remembered or, I mean, an example, it was in in some respects, looking back on it, it's it's almost quite comical, but my goodness, it wasn't at the time. Um, I had a, a couple where one of them knew that the partner knew the addicted partner often acted out. And he said he often acted out. And I just happened to ask the question, how often is often? And her interpretation of often was, I I can't remember exactly now, but say once a month, whereas his um, definition of often was twice a week. Mm. Um, They both thought the other one knew what often meant. This really was a genuine miscommunication, but it caused such devastation and going almost back to square one for that poor partner again. So again, this is how a therapeutic disclosure really helps people be sure that they have got the the story, as it were, the narrative. Um, And doing it in a safe way or as as safe a way as possible, unfortunately, we can't guarantee it's pain-free, but having some way to move forward from that as well, a process of moving forward. Yeah, and let's let's veer our conversation towards recovery and what you see as required. I know that you came up with your choices. Is it choice yeah. or choices? Choice. Um, choice model. Um and and that was a, a little bit of a departure um from there's there's a model created by Patrick Carnes here in the in the States and you did some training with him and then decided there yeah. was something more that needed to be there. 
Um, so how, how is your model different? And then let's, let's dive in because I, I want to make sure that everyone listening to this conversation feels like there actually is a pathway forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. And I think um, the, the, the whole, the whole field of uh, sex and porn addiction recovery has grown so much and, and indeed chemical addiction recovery. And the training initially I was doing with Patrick Carnes was, um, oh gosh, I think the first course was over 10 years ago that I did. Um, and some of his early writings, of course, are pre-internet. Uh, some of those stats still get quoted from a book that was written before the internet. And, and clearly the profile of a sex and porn addict has changed considerably. Um, so, yeah, they, I know their change, their um, training has evolved and their models will have evolved as well since I did the training. Um, but I think that what really changed for me is understanding how uh, getting into recovery from um, addiction is about so much more than stopping. There's one of the kind of sayings of recovery is that recovery is about what you take up, not about what you give up. And I think the initial models that I was trained in were all about focusing on stopping your behaviors. And if you stop your behaviors, you'll get better. Things will, your depression will lift, your anxiety will lift, your relationship, your belly will live happily ever after. And actually, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, I think life is a lot more complicated than that. So for me, most addictive behaviors, or a lot of them are symptoms of other issues that are going on in life. So you absolutely need to be sure you've identified those, recognized those, and are dealing with those. But even from a simply from a biological perspective, if you just try and stop your porn use and you don't replace it with healthy alternative activities that give your life a sense of meaning and purpose, um, then you just end up with a void. You end up with an, an, an emptiness and nothingness. And I work with so many young guys now um, where huge chunks of their time is spent on porn. They've never had a partnered relationship. And they really need to to find a new way of living their life, living an unaddicted life. So the choice model really is um, the C. The first is a, an acrostic. The first C is all about challenging any unhelpful beliefs. So those beliefs, I can't change. It's just who I am. I've just got a high sex drive. I'm just a weirdo. Uh, the H is about having a vision. And again, I think this is something that has really changed for me, understanding how much easier it is to drive people towards something than away from something. Let's focus on what you'll gain, not on what you'll lose. So have a vision. The O is about overcoming the behaviours. I used to think that was the whole treatment programme. I now recognise that's just one part of it. The I is about identifying positive sexuality. As I was saying right at the beginning of this podcast, for me, it really is about reclaiming sexuality from the addiction. The second C is about um, connecting with other people and one of the, the real joys of group work and whether that's within a therapeutic group, a peer support group, a 12-step group, whatever it is, I think is building those relationships with other people, breaking through the shame and secrecy. And I think, you know, as humans, we were we were you know, created to connect. I think that's so important. And the final E is about establishing confident recovery. That really is uh, building your life will with meaningful um, other relationships and hobbies and pastimes and career and personal growth and all that other stuff. So I think my, uh, my kind of recovery model has become increasingly integrative and has been about changing your life rather than just changing your addiction. 
Great. Yeah, there's that was a lecture, wasn't it? No, Sorry. it was, it was perfect. <laughs> you, you went right through the entire choice model. And of course, each of those, you know, we could talk for, you know, five or 10 minutes oh, on yeah. and, and we don't have time to do that. <laughs> Sadly, um, I will say that um, each of your books, they're they're fairly concise and direct. And and that's really helpful. I think you can dive into understanding and treating sex and pornography addiction and come away with some very practical strategies as well as a, a comprehensive understanding of, of what you're dealing with. Um, yeah, very much written as a self-help book as well as a, a research book. So, yeah. Great. Um, could we talk for a moment about the the cycle of addiction that you've identified and and particularly how how that can be a way for people to kind of understand themselves and and where they are in that cycle and 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 how to make different choices depending on where they are in the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So um, six stages on the cycle of addiction. So uh, dormant phase is where you're not acting out. So you're not, and some people will, might go weeks, months without acting out. Um, critically, dormant is not the same as recovered. Um, yeah, a period of abstinence is not the same as recovery. And often what's hiding in that dormant phase are all sorts of unresolved issues that you've not dealt with. You're still lonely. You're still isolated. You still hate your job. You still feel you're trapped in the wrong marriage or feel bad about your sexuality whatever it is uh then there are triggers whatever those triggers might be that kind of push you out of that dormant phase and often they're either environmental and i think we often underestimate just the impact of having the opportunity to act out when it's on the plate and we now really understand some of the neuroscience about why that is so hard to resist it's not purely psychological but of course there might be uh, emotional triggers as well so having an argument um, feeling particularly isolated rejected whatever it might be then there's often a period of um, you know a series of triggers and you're thinking should I shouldn't I and all those cognitive distortions yes but everybody looks at porn but does it really matter it'll only be for five minutes all the lies we tell ourselves for for why it will be okay for us to do it and we, we all do this I, I have fun when I'm doing public speaking I'll often ask uh, for a show of hands of anybody who's never broken the speed limit in their car <laughs> and of course there's always one person and I say do you drive a car and they all say no and put their hand up <laughs> I've never yet met anybody who drives a car who's not broken the speed limit and um, we all believe that speed limits are right and good but we make excuses for why on some occasions it's okay I was late uh, the, the driving conditions were perfect. I wasn't going fast as that person. I'm a very good driver. We all have our reasons why we break our own rules. So it's, it's no different for addicts. Then, of course, there's the actual acting out behavior, whatever that might be. Um, and, and really, it doesn't matter whether your thing is is porn or cam sex or sex workers or cruising or whatever it is. It's the way that behavior makes you feel that you're addicted to um, not actually what it is. Um, period of regret. I think this is the, the big difference between uh, my cycle of addiction and Patrick Kahn's cycle that he refers to is he talks about despair. And uh, for an awful lot of people I've worked with, there isn't despair and shame. 
If you're single and you've been looking at porn yet again for another night for five hours and you're not going to get to sleep till one o'clock in the morning, you regret it because you're going to be tired and you feel a bit of an idiot. But despair, no. Often despair isn't experienced until much, much later in the kind of evolution of the addiction. Um, But then often there's a period of time in uh, the reconstitution phase of trying to put everything back together again. Right, that's it. I'm going to put those blockers back on. I'm going to make more of an effort. You know, I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure I don't do that. But it's um, what you're doing then is just going back into dormant because you still haven't managed and dealt with those issues that get triggered and set you off going around again. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting you talk about um, that the preparation phase, like getting ready, that that often is actually what is bringing relief to people. Yeah, well, it, it gets, it's not a perfect model. No models are. <laughs> um, it's, it's really tricky to identify when something is acting out and when it's, well, when something's acting out. Because I think often in the seeking and searching phase, particularly, for example, people who um, visit sex workers, they may spend days and days and days looking at the website, reading the reviews, um, chatting for a few different people. Really, that is all the acting out. Mm. I'm not sure that is the preparation phase. I think the preparation phase and the acting out phase kind of blur. Got it. Because often by the time they get to acting out, that's just trying to get the damn thing over and done with. Yeah. So it's, me- the, it's the window shopping, as it were, <laughs> that really has been the addiction rather than buying, the being at the till and paying for the item. That's so interesting, right? Because the, the dopamine is fueled by the seeking, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. that's, that's yeah. where that, that addictive biological and, cycle happens yeah and i think that's where people sometimes and i, I think that's what you know with assessment that's where the, the, the questions are so important if you just say to somebody how often do you act out they might say um oh i visit a sex worker once a month and it's never escalated it seems it's been once a month for the last two years if you ask how much time do you spend online seeking sex workers, looking at sex worker reviews, sending texts to sex workers, exchanging messages and pictures with sex workers, you might get quite a different answer. And that might be the piece that is escalating significantly. Right, right. Um, I just want to highlight that you mentioned that along with obviously treating people who have or are struggling with sex addiction and also treating couples and working with partners, that you also train therapists to work with people who have are are struggling with sex addiction and are impacted by it. Um, So how how does that work? Do people come to the UK to train with you or is it online or? Yeah, no, we haven't done anything online yet. Uh, Yet. Everything's evolving, isn't it? Um, So we we do obviously just kind of, you know, single day training events and I've done quite a lot of in-house stuff as well. So I've been to a few rehabs and done kind of um, dedicated four day training programs to really upskill addiction stuff, particularly in sex and sexuality and working with sex addiction. So I've done that in quite a few places. Um, And we can kind of tailor make those programs. But we also have um, an accredited diploma. So um, it's an independently accredited diploma. So one of the professional awarding bodies in the UK has accredited accredited it. Um, And that's a level five diploma. And that's three modules of four days 
And really what we're teaching therapists is uh, an integrative model. So it's so this is what's also very different from Patrick Kahn's model. If you do the Patrick Kahn's model, then you're um, being trained to deliver the 30-task approach, whereas um, what we're doing is training you in sex and porn addiction and some of the models we use, but how you then interpret that. Um, there's no set program. It's not a, um, a manualized system that you're being taught. It's much more about people, uh, for people who um, kind of work uh, more relationally with clients, whether that's in developing programs or one-to-one to, to kind of tailor it to, to, to the places where they work and their own personal modalities as well. Got it. Well, we only have about a minute left. And so if you are interested in Paula Hall and her work, I encourage you to visit the the Laurel Center website, Paula's website, to get one of her many great books on the topic. Um, so whether you're a therapist or someone who's impacted, I, I heartily recommend her work. We will have those links in the show notes for today's episode, which you can pick up if you go to neilsatin.com slash addiction or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Paula, I'm wondering if, if you have a minute for one last question. Um, okay. And, and that is we've, we've talked a little bit about not just stopping things and, and putting, putting new healthy behaviors in. And, and there are some great suggestions around that in, in your book. I'm wondering if you can just talk for a minute. Obviously, this is way too short, but about, <laughs> about the healing aspect of how, of how someone goes about healing the underlying issues that lead to, to being an addict and, and acting out. So I, I think there are um, the model I use and I talk about in the book is, is now often referred to as the OAT model. Um, there has to be opportunity. And of course, this has been the big game changer over the years, isn't it? Is the fact that we can now access pornography and sex through a mobile phone. Absolute anonymity. Um, it's been the absolute game changer. So there has to be the opportunity. For some people, there's greater opportunity because of their work. Um, because of whatever their personal private situation is, their financial means, whatever, they have more opportunity than others. Um, and that in itself, of course, is a temptation because we, we all are drawn towards sex and sexual novelty. It's part of how we've been wired up. Um, but for some people, they're more susceptible to that opportunity, those opportunities than others are. And some are more susceptible because they've experienced um, issues in their childhood. And those issues may be um, around kind of ne neglectful or absent parenting. So they may have been brought up with a sense that nobody will really care for their needs. They can't really trust other people. Uh, and what tends to happen in those situations is that you turn to, uh, for comfort, you tend to turn to things rather than people. So if you've got a history where people have let you down, you may decide to look after yourself and turn to things rather than others. And of course, porn and sex are um, effective comforters. 
But then there's trauma as well. So for some people, it's the attachment wounds in childhood. For some people, it's trauma. So if you've experienced a significant trauma, that might be in childhood or it might be uh, as, as an adult. We work with a number of people um, from the armed forces, emergency services who've had significant um, traumas kind of later in life. And we know that trauma actually impacts the brain directly. So this isn't just a psychological issue then. It's become a, a biological issue. So we know that the way that trauma impacts the brain makes it harder you need more comfort because you end up um hypersensitive to a lot of cues and triggers but also it's harder to actually access the self-soothing chemicals within the brain because of the trauma so you're more likely to look to external things to soothe that but i think there's one other thing that i would say neil that's why i'm so grateful to people like you for doing these kind of podcasts and one of the great causes for sex and porn addiction is um is, is naivety is ignorance is not knowing is the lack of education and unfortunately, so often we get caught up in the moral debates about pornography and um, sexuality. And of course, those debates exist. And I'm not trying to say they're not important ones. But I think often we lose the health issues. And I believe very passionately that we need to start educating people, particularly our young people, about the potential risks of um, sex addiction and pornography addiction so they can recognize it in themselves. So many people develop these addictions simply because they didn't know it could become addicted. Mm. Well, we are undoing the naivete right here. And I so appreciate, I so appreciate your time and wisdom today. And hopefully we can have you back on. I I know we could easily talk for another hour. And, (laughs) and, um, and I just want to point out to uh, our listeners that we have had Peter Levine on the show to talk about healing from trauma. We've had, uh, David Burns on the show to talk about cognitive distortions. We've had Diana Fosha to talk about, uh, AEDP, which is an attachment centered therapy. So healing early attachment wounds. So all of this is meant to offer you a, a big integrated package of, of healing and, and hope for you. And Paula, thank you so much for, for being part of that picture with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.